Broadcasting live from the KVXL studios at Liberty Baptist Church in Las Vegas. Freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. The Frittle Show with Crystal Heath. I've said that we must be cautious in claiming God is on our side. I think the real question we must answer is, are we on his side? Faith, family, freedom. For me, it's very simple. I think we've got to we've got to get the country back on the right track with the most inspiring agenda a voice in the desert now here's crystal heath hey what's up everybody great to have you with us it's thursday we have so much to talk about and i don't even know if we're going to get through it all but we're going to try you're listening to kvxl 101.1 fm experience liberty radio i just realized that that sounded really pathetic like we're going to try we're going to try, guys. Anyway, we're broadcasting from Liberty Baptist Church in Las Vegas. We'd love to have you join us for services if you are in town this Sunday, 9.30 or 11.15 Sunday morning, 6 p.m. Sunday evening. All right, we're going to start out uh, with a little conversation about socialism and see where this takes us. Like I said, lot to cover, lot to cover today. I don't know how much of it we're going to get to. We're just going to dive in. President Xi Jinping urged China's youth earlier this week to be loyal to the Communist Party. It was an hour-long plea at the Great Hall of the People uh, commemorating the May 4th movement, which happened in 1919 in China as a protest against imperialism. Uh, the, uh, The speech is intended to hopefully inspire the youth to uh, love communism even as the 30-year anniversary of the Tiananmen Square protest is about to occur. So essentially, uh, (laughs) we're trying to prevent any possible future disturbances, if you will, in the communist regime by encouraging China's youth to love communism. The Chinese president told the crowd, it's very shameful if a person isn't patriotic or even deceives or betrays the motherland. There is no place for such a person to stand anywhere. In contemporary China, the essence of patriotism is to combine one's love for the country with love for the party and socialism. Chinese youth in the new era shall listen to the words of the party and follow the steps of the party. Um, I don't, I don't know if you've heard, but there's a trend among many young people in the United States today towards, you know, socialism being hip and cool and the thing that would probably really work and solve all of our problems. I feel like this should be a warning. Like the Chinese president <laughs> gathers Chinese youth together to tell them, you shall listen. You shall follow. You will comply, essentially. If that doesn't scare you a little bit, it should. See, those who love communism are those who rule in it or those who've never never lived under it in this country. Americans who love communism are those who've never lived under it. You know, we don't have to look far at all for a, a sh- example of the disaster that socialism is. Just look at Venezuela. And by the way, before we jump into this here, what is happening in Venezuela is not a coup. What's happening in Caracas is an attempt to restore legitimacy to Venezuela's government, not to overthrow its government. And it's 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 tumultuous right now. It's unclear what the end result will be. But what we do know is that this isn't a coup. You wouldn't know that from many of the headlines here in the States, though. We have headlines like Politico, Trump aides back unfolding Venezuela coup attempt. CNN, coup in Venezuela. No, it's, it's not a coup. 
The only people that are actually calling it a coup outside of the country are those in Nicolas Maduro's regime. The country's information minister, the guy that's allowed to tell you what you're supposed to think, tweeted that the event was just a small group of traitors attempting a coup. Well, not really. And I, I went into this earlier this week, but uh, uh, Gudo, the, uh, the alternate party here, if you will, is the interim president. He is recognized by the United States and literally dozens of other countries. He has democratic legitimacy. And the government should be his. But Madero won't get out of the way. In May of last year... Maduro won what was called an election and no outside source declared that it was free or fair. So when his second term of office began in January, Venezuela's Supreme Court, which by the way, they are in exile, Venezuela's exiled Supreme Court, exiled by this guy that quote-unquote won an election, uh, ruled that Madero had exceeded his authority by staying in power after his only legitimate term in office. That prompted a series of events uh, which invoked a provision of the Venezuelan constitution that makes the leader of the National Assembly the interim president when the presidency is vacated. That person would be Gudo. And if you compare the two figures here, Guto and Maduro, since the opposition party in Venezuela won a majority in the National Assembly in 2015, that would be Guto's party, Maduro has delegitimized that institution. So instead of continuing on with the National Assembly as it was, this dictator created uh, his own separate assembly and declared that the National Assembly was no longer in power and has been attempting to govern using this alternate assembly uh, full of his uh, supporters. Meanwhile, he's used that assembly to kick out the rightful Supreme Court, pack the courts with his own supporters, arrested his opponents, and uh, taken loans out from Russia and China and created alliances with Cuba, who has troops on the ground in Venezuela attempting to put down uh, the rightful President Guto and his supporters. So what you see happening is, is this man, his supporters, and the Venezuelan people quite simply attempting to save their country from... Um, Maduro's continued dictatorship. This is not an anti-democracy coup. As, um, as Bloomberg, Eli Lake and Bloomberg so aptly put it, this is in fact a democratic rescue mission. It is the people trying to save their country from socialism. It's not a coup. And when we look at Venezuela, what we need to understand is that it is, it is, is in many ways the perfect example of why socialism simply doesn't work. Because when, when you hear people talk about socialism even here in this country, it sounds great. Right? Everybody's going to get stuff. Everyone will be successful. Everything will be great for everybody all the time. That just sounds like a good plan. Right? Well, Venezuelans didn't start out with thinking, let's be socialist because socialism will destroy our country. No. It was all about equality. It was all about elevating the poor and, uh, and, and 
realigning their economic system to make everything equitable for everyone. So Maduro's predecessor, you've probably heard of Hugo Chavez, he, uh, he's in control of Venezuela. He works to increase government control, uh, entitlements, expands social programs, nationalizes their industries, uh, literally thousands of companies, or at least the assets of thousands of companies, he took from the companies and turned into uh, nationalized, government-run businesses. And it worked for a time. But the only reason that it worked is because in Venezuela... Oil was booming. And so they had surplus money from their oil boom that they were able to redistribute and keep this whole thing, all the clogs in this machine turning. They were able to keep the socialism working because they were able to use this oil money to make everything appear equitable. But like Margaret Thatcher said... The problem with socialism is that eventually you run out of other people's money. So Chavez is giving away this oil money, redistributing wealth, uh, nationalizing, uh, taking industries away from the private sector, nationalizing them, expanding their social programs, expanding entitlement, uh, creating government control of basically everything. And in the end, when you eliminate free markets, when you eliminate people's abilities to uh, be successful producing goods and services on their own, well, eventually the whole scheme stops. Because when you rob Peter to pay Paul, eventually Peter will run out of money. And if every time Peter makes a dollar, Paul takes it away from him, there's going to come a point where Peter no longer has a desire to make the dollar because as soon as he makes it, Paul's going to take it. And if Peter stops making the money, Paul stops having money to take. And now nobody has anything. So Chavez creates this system. It seems to work. It seems like it's awesome. And then it all comes crashing down when the oil money runs out. Maduro inherits this, what was seeming to be a socialist utopia, now debunked. And so instead of trying to reverse the problem and allow freedom, allow capitalism to work, instead he increases regulations... And the, the, the corruption level soars as he attempts to push further into the socialist agenda and the socialist mindset of government control of everything. And that is what has led to the disaster that we see in Venezuela today and the subsequent attempt by Guido and his supporters to reclaim their country. And some people say, well, Venezuela isn't a socialist country because they have a governing body. Well, yes, but the actual governing body has been disavowed, essentially, by the, the quote-unquote president and replaced with his own assembly. Uh, the Supreme Court is in exile, replaced with his own court. That's not... <laughs> that... Okay... I, I just, I literally just scratched my head. I don't know how you don't think this is socialism. People say, well, well, but it's not as bad as communism. And if, as long as we're not communists, it'll work. Okay, well, let's just have a little review. For, we'll just take, we'll take like two minutes and review the differences between communism, socialism, and capitalism. So that everybody's on the same page and then we'll move forward and, and I'll equate this back to some things that are happening here in the United States this week. Businesses, competition, and profits. 
In many ways, this is what makes an economy go round. Okay? Under communism, the vast majority of businesses are owned and operated by the government. There is not competition. And because the businesses are owned and operated by the government, if those businesses make money, the profits go directly back into the government coffers, which is often how you see communist dictators living like kings while their people suffer. Because the people are being, well, I'll, I'll explain this in a minute, but I'll just tell you now. The people aren't being able to get ahead because they're not having their own businesses. They're not experiencing the profits. Their places of employment are limited, and most of the people living in a communist country work for government-owned industries, whether that be uh, tech, um, automotive, farms, whatever it may be, whatever the industry is, if it's making money in communism, it is... There's like a 99.9% .9 chance that that business is government-owned. And then as a result, when it comes to uh, your, your options as a consumer for various products, your choices are very limited because the industries are government-run and then the government is setting their own prices and therefore, the prices are usually very high. There's no competition. The government is owning and operating everything. So that's how that's how communism is. It's just not... And that's what's happening in China. That's what the president of China is telling his young people. Hey, communism is good. If you love the country, you will love communism and you shall comply. Okay? Not a lot of choices in communism. Then you have socialism. In socialism... The government, uh, if, if you want to have a small business, you are permitted to have a small business. Just don't get too successful or the government will take it away from you. Every major industry is owned and operated by the government under socialism. Competition is encouraged amongst your little small businesses. Just don't make too much money. But it's restricted in major industries because the government owns them. If your small business makes a small profit, you can reinvest that profit in your business. That is what you are allowed to do with it. But profits from the government-owned major corporations and major industries go directly back into the government in the same way uh, that we would see happening in communism. There's a little more uh, flexibility when it comes to where you can work because there are some small businesses, but they're, they're limited in how they're allowed to to the, what extent they're allowed to grow, essentially. Um, so there, there's some choice of career, but the majority of people are still working in government jobs because the government is running every major industry. Because you do have, however, still some small businesses in operation where the government just owns larger corporations, there can be some competition and there's some choice for consumers. And then we have capitalism, where individuals own and operate all businesses. You are free to keep your profits. Use them however you want. Competition is encouraged by what the market determines and by government regulations. We actually have government regulations that help with competition. Because of this, your employment options are essentially unlimited. When you grow up in America, what is it that every parent tells their kid? You could be anything you want to be. Which honestly is probably a lie. You know, you're... you're <laughs> I don't mean to crush your hopes and dreams or sound like a gloomy Gus, but you know, we tell our kids they could be anything they want to be. Well, no, not really. What if they want to be a dog? That is an unachievable goal. But anyway, so we have wide varieties, wide availability, wide uh, choices when it comes to goods and services and, and employment options. Prices are not set 
well, for some things, but largely speaking, prices are determined by supply and demand. They're not regulated or determined strictly by the government and with the money's all going back to the government. Anyway, no, prices are determined largely by supply and demand with profits going back to individuals who can then create more jobs, more businesses, and just keep the cycle going. So... In essence, what you have is socialism simply being communism veiled in a democracy by allowing you some freedom to succeed, but that success has limits. And what we are seeing now more than ever is that many on the left and in the Democratic Party, specifically some running up for the Democratic nomination for president, are attempting to utilize socialist principles in a capitalist society, and it doesn't work. Bernie Sanders is an obvious obvious example of this, but perhaps less obvious are some others. Uh, Kristen Gillibrand has a proposal to, uh, to issue democracy dollars. Democracy dollars would be vouchers uh, in, in various denominations up to $600. And these $600 worth of vouchers, you as a voter... Uh, would be able to give to whomever would be your favorite political candidates. I mean, I, here's the problem, though. You can't give away something that isn't yours. Or at least you shouldn't. And anytime there's these proposals of, well, we're going to give everybody this, where are you getting it from? It's not yours to give away. I mean, free college, free health care, free or affordable housing. None of it is actually free. <laughs> the only way it can be free is under socialism or under communism. There is nothing that is free in capitalism, and quite frankly, it isn't free under socialism or communism either. You're paying for it just by not taking home anything from your paycheck. But here's why it doesn't work under capitalism. Because teachers don't teach for free. You can't say that education will be free when someone has to provide for you that education unless you're saying that that person is not going to be paid. And if that person is going to be paid, then obviously it's not free. Logically, it just doesn't work. Doctors, they're not free. The only way you can say that a doctor is free is if that doctor is not paid by anyone. And if that doctor is paid by anybody, then that doctor is not free. See, Obamacare was just a gateway to socialized medicine. Obamacare was was this like stepping stone towards, see, we can have the government run an industry and it will be amazing. But it's not amazing. It has been nothing but a royal mess and a very expensive one at that. And then you come to affordable housing. What makes it, um, who determines what is affordable and what is not? Who determines how much space that a family needs? Who's paying to keep the lights on? Who's paying for the electricity? Are contractors allowed to make a profit? I mean, there's just, it, free stuff doesn't exist. Not in the world that we live in. It sounds great, but it's a fairy tale. But coming specifically to this $600 of vouchers for your favorite political candidate, where does this money come from? Well, Gillibrand tells us it comes from successful businesses by eliminating some of their currently allowed deductions. So what we'll do is we'll simply penalize their success, sounds an awful lot like socialism to me, in order to allow all voters to give money in the form of vouchers to political candidates. Sounds like more socialism, borderline communism right there. So the government will give you back some of your money in the form of a voucher so that you can give your money in the form of a voucher to politicians. This, this sounds like, I mean, what could possibly go wrong? Also, can we define voter, please? Because it isn't defined for us. She defines where the money comes from, but not who voters are. I mean, is this a registered voter or is this anyone over the age of 18? Is this someone with an intention to vote? Do we have to show ID to get democracy dollars? And will you be mailing any to anyone's deceased relatives? All the questions. Also, why not just give every American 600 bucks outright? Forget the voucher. Just give me $600 cash and let, let me do with it whatever I want. I mean, maybe you'd be better off feeding your family or taking your family to Disney for a day, then you would be giving $600 of yours or someone else's money to some political candidate. 
Just a thought. I mean, if we're just going to give away money. And what if, what if someone doesn't like any of the candidates anyway? What happens? Like, what is the value of these vouchers? And if they're issued and not used, how does that work? I mean, there's just, there's so, so many problems. So I have an idea. If you think campaign spending is out of control, now hear me now, this is going to sound crazy, but if you think it's out of control, more regulations, not to mention giving citizens voucher money, is not the answer. But the answer could be removing private contribution caps. I know it sounds crazy, but Sophia Dye wrote a piece for the University of Pennsylvania on this, which was incredibly insightful and very interesting to me. And her summary of the history of campaign finance is just so good. I'm just going to read a little portion of her, of her work for you because this, this is very interesting. She writes that historical attempts to regulate campaign financing were ineffectual and often created new problems. The aim of the 1971 Federal Election Campaign Act, or FECA, was to increase donor accountability by requiring more transparency and disclosure in federal campaigns. Congress increased, increased the regulation in 1974 to cap campaign contributions. Proponents of the bill argued that the wealth of certain individuals would corrupt politicians and the political system as a whole. As a way of circumventing these contribution caps, PACs, or political action committees, became essential to national elections. Although PACs existed prior to FECA, they were primarily used by unions and were insignificant to elections because individuals were able to contribute however much they wanted on their own. But since donors were no longer able to contribute unlimited amounts personally to campaigns, they began to donate substantially to PACs in the 1980s and 90s. Donors, no longer subjected to individual caps or disclosure requirements spent more than they had prior to the 1974 FECA amendment. So despite the intentions to eliminate political corruption and excessive spending in federal campaigns, FECA essentially helped generate more spending by establishing powerful PACs. Isn't that crazy? Political action committees were created or, 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 or became the monsters that they are today not because of a of a lack of regulations, but because of increased regulations. Dye continues, In further efforts to reform campaign financing, Congress passed the 2002 McCain-Feingold Act, or the Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act. This act sought to prohibit national party committees from raising and spending funds not subject to federal limits and ban corporations and unincorporated entities from placing broadcast ads to name federal candidates. Proponents of this argued this bill would decrease the amount of campaign spending, increase accountability by politicians, and would ultimately lead to more equalization between the electorate. To avoid the provisions in the act which bans soft money, wealthy contributors gave huge amounts to independent organizations under Section 527 of the IRS Code. Before the McCain-Feingold Act, parties and candidates had to take responsibility for the quality of political discourse. But after the act, shadow parties, which are short-lived special interest groups that focus on specific uh, issues or elections, became extremely influential. Because more respectable organizations were unable to use soft money funds to create ads, these unknown groups were able to run more attack ads that were substantially more damaging and less accountable. The consequence of this regulation decreased accountability and transparency rather than increased it. Are you sensing a pattern here? This is so incredibly fascinating. It, she goes on. Since 1974, total congressional campaign spending has increased from $77 million to $1.8 billion. Reform measures to decrease spending and corruption have not been successful. The $2,500 cap set on individual donations to individual campaigns pushed money into independent groups, PACs, 527s, and 501c4s, and wealthy individuals now funnel substantial money into super PACs. These independent, expenditure-only committees are not subject to campaign limits and as they act as independent organizations, politicians are able to deny involvement with these groups. Today, there are about 1,090 super PACs contributing actively in federal elections, and as of July 2014, these groups reported total spending of $242 million. These groups only exist to circumvent the contribution cap, and they create less accountability in political campaigns. If Congress eliminated these contribution caps, it would eliminate the need for these organizations entirely. 
According to the paper, do state campaign finance reforms reduce public corruption by scholars Adriana Cordes and Jeff Milo? Reform efforts have little effect on reducing public corruption. And if we hope to actually eliminate corrupt politics, then campaign finance reform measures should be repealed. Now, that is very interesting. Historically speaking, campaign uh, finance spending has only grown and become more corrupt every time we add regulations to it. How about them apples? Also capitalism. And now a break for a song. <laughs> we'll return in a moment. The Gospel of Mary. Have you heard of it? We're back. This is The Frittle Show on KVXL 101.1 FM in Las Vegas. The Gospel of Mary. It is not a new written work. So uh, We've known about it for several hundred years at least. But thanks to Hollywood, we will again have another saga in an ever-failing attempt to distort the Gospels and Jesus Christ himself. Now, the Gospel of Mary purports to have been written by Mary, presumably Mary Magdalene. Scholars do argue on this, but that's where we're going to go uh, for the purposes of this program and because that's who... Well, anyway. Um, it is a non-biblical source full of Gnostic teaching and, by the way, historically speaking, was written well after Mary or the other disciples would have already been dead. You can't write a book when you're dead. This much I know. You also can't be an eyewitness to something that happened before you were born or to someone, Jesus, who died prior to your appearance on the scene. Unless maybe you get the time stone. No, it doesn't work that way. This book, like others, including the Gnostic Gospel of Thomas, was written post-Jesus' life, was not written by the commonly held author, and is a twist on Jesus' life and teaching in an attempt by whomever the author was to promote his or her way of thinking, which was in fact in both of these, uh, Mary and Thomas, Gnosticism. And as such, they are both rejected by the church as not only a fabrication, but as false gospels. John Stone Street from the Colson Center summarized the myriad number of problems with the Gospel of Mary exceptionally well on a recent episode uh, of his program, Breakpoint, when he noted that the Gospel of Mary describes a dialogue between Mary, Andrew, and Peter in which Mary claims to have learned a number of hidden concepts and truths from Jesus. Andrew quickly identifies these truth claims as unorthodox and challenges Mary Quote, I at least do not believe that the Savior said this, for certainly these teachings are strange ideas, unquote. The text therefore recognizes that it is teaching something unorthodox. The Gospel of Mary teaches the Gnostic notion that Jesus' teaching was the path to eternal life rather than his suffering and death on the cross. Mary Magdalene is elevated in stature and described as someone that the Savior loved more than the rest of women. And while many authors of fiction have used this portion of this false gospel to extrapolate that Jesus and Mary were intimate, nothing more exists in the text that would support such an idea. This ancient, non-canonical text, though attributed to someone who would have known Jesus personally, is a late fictional narrative. When examined under the criteria we use to determine eyewitness reliability, it fails the test. The four canonical Gospels, Mark, Matthew, Luke, and John, are still the earliest reliable record of Jesus written within the lifetime of the eyewitnesses who knew Jesus personally. So you're going to hear about this film coming uh, I, I believe it comes out this year. I know they're working on it. it may even release this summer. Uh, and I just wanted to give you a little bit of a heads up as to what this is, where it's coming from. It is, it is not in any way uh, historical. We know that it was written post... It, 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 I just don't know how you say that, oh, we believe this person wrote the book, but yes, they would have been dead. When, when we believe it must have been written for them to actually be an eyewitness. Well, that, that doesn't even make any sense. So, like the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Mary is a fictitious work presented as truth by someone attempting to distort the Gospel to fit their way of thinking, which in this case was, in fact, Gnosticism. 
All right, we're going to completely change gears here, and I have no good segue into this. Um, but there is a there is a gal named Castor Semenya. And she has now lost her case to compete as a woman in every race that she runs. Now, if this was a person who had been born a man who was now wanting to compete in women's sports, then I would think this would be a good thing. But it is not. This gal was born with naturally elevated levels of testosterone. And the, um, the, I think it's the Olympic Committee. Is it the Olympic Committee? Uh, the Swiss-based Court of Arbitration for Sport. I have to sneeze. <laughs> Excuse me, sorry. Um. <clears throat> In a rare biological trait, this woman is part of a small subset of women who have more testosterone than an average woman would have. It's naturally elevated and obviously muscle building. Well, the Court of Arbitration has said that since uh, competition is divided into male and female categories, there must be an equitable way to decide who can compete in women's events. And again... This is something, this is a conversation that we should have, especially with all of the gender fluidity in our culture. But in a 2-1 decision, the court ruled that restrictions on permitted levels of naturally occurring testosterone were discriminatory, but that such discrimination was a necessary, reasonable, and proportionate means of achieving, of achieving track and field's goal of preserving the integrity of female competition. The International Association of Athletics Federation said it was grateful uh, for this ruling and argued that athletes classified with differences in uh, specific types of developments, particularly women who uh, have uh, uh, natural testosterone levels in the male range, have an unfair advantage in women's events because they have additional muscle mass. But the sports courts expressed some serious concerns about the fairness and practical applications of limiting participation based on said limits. If you're thinking, what are you talking about right now? Let me break it down for you. By starting with feminists, where are they on this sort of thing? I always wonder when I read stuff like this, where, where does actual feminism come in here? Because what about women's rights? I mean, seriously, how on earth can someone who is born a man, who has the strength of a man his entire life, and look, ladies, this isn't an insult. This is science. The average man is stronger and faster than the average woman on an average day. Maybe not the video game playing type of male, but you get what I mean. I'm talking, both of you doing an hour in the gym daily, the guy is still going to beat you in an arm wrestling competition because he's just naturally got hormones. You don't because God made him this way, okay? But then you have people like this woman, who was born a woman, competes as a woman her whole life, and is being told that she has to suppress what naturally occurs in her body. Now, granted, it's not normal for what other women experience, but she's not doing anything to enhance this, per se, and yet we trample on her and what she experiences naturally happening in her body while collectively turning a blind eye to those who are born male and to decide then to compete in female sports. Apparently, what we've decided uh, on a global scale is that it is testosterone levels that determine if you can compete in female sports, not your actual gender, which you are born with. I guess would be the best way to put that. I mean, we've, we've reached an impasse, not only in America, but internationally, of having to say, do we, will we, acknowledge the real biological differences between men and women? Will we apply those facts to the world of sports or is it time for women to just stop competing altogether? I mean, it, it, this used to be simple. If you are a woman, and there, nobody nobody batted an eye, thinking, oh, but could you just define for me the difference between male and female? No, you, you just knew, right? Like, if you're a woman, you compete in women's sports. Okay. If you're a man, you compete in men's sports. 
got it. But we've created this gender fluidity to where you, you just, I mean, you're not even allowed to say if somebody, like, I think, I think you're, I don't know what's going on there. But here's the thing. The fact of the matter is, if there is a man who claims to be a woman who won't win if he runs with the dudes because he's not fast enough to beat other men who were born men, then he slash she, if you will, will run with the girls and win. And we see it happening across high school and college sports right now. And eventually, if this continues unchecked, there will be so many quote-unquote transitioning men competing as women that it will be absolutely pointless for women, born women, to even bother trying in sports, testosterone levels or not. I mean, you want to find a war on women here in America, there you go. If you want to expand it, let's go worldwide, we can talk about what Sharia law does to women in the 15 countries it governs. And the fact that multiple of those countries sit on the UN Civil Rights Commission. Or we could talk about sex trafficking. We could talk about abortion next. I mean, there are, there are so many real issues in the world today. There are so many real problems. So many hurting people. There are so many women who are actually oppressed around the world. A solution to the hurt and the problems is not to penalize a woman for what naturally occurs in her body or to give everyone democracy dollars to pass along to their favorite candidates, nor is it to add a false gospel narrative to Hollywood's summer playlist. The solution is, has been, will always be the word of God, Jesus Christ, the only hope for mankind. The answer to all of the questions is found in him. And today, today is the National Day of Prayer in America. It's a day that's happened for essentially since the, the beginning of our country. And it's a day where we will, we will pray for our leaders. We will pray for our nation as a whole. It's a day when uh, we'll talk about how prayer was influential in the founding and heritage of our country. I mean, just... Just the Constitutional Convention alone. You know, you're, you're five weeks, I think it's five weeks, into the Constitutional Convention in 1787. The founders are attempting to draft our Constitution. Things are not going well. And Benjamin Franklin, in one of my favorite quotes, not only attributed to him, but in the entire uh, story of our founding, said, in this situation of this assembly, groping as it were in the dark to find political truth and scarce able to distinguish it when presented to us, just that statement alone, is that not as applicable today as it was then? Groping as it were in the dark to find political truth and scarce able to distinguish it when presented to us. Hmm. He said, how has it happened, sir? addressing the leader of the assembly, that we have not hitherto once thought of humbly applying to the Father of Lights to illuminate our understanding. In the beginning of the contest with Great Britain, when we were sensible of danger, we had daily prayer in this room for divine protection. Our prayers, sir, were heard and they were graciously answered. All of us who were engaged in the struggle must have observed frequent instances of a superintending providence in our favor. And have we now forgotten that powerful friend? Or do we imagine that we no longer need his assistance? I have lived, sir, a long time. And the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth, that God governs in the affairs of men. And if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it probable that an empire can rise without his aid? We have been assured, sir, in the sacred writings, that except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. I firmly believe this, and I also believe that without his concurring aid we shall succeed in this political building no better than the builders of Babel. I therefore beg leave to move that henceforth prayers imploring the assistance of heaven and its blessings on our deliberations be held in this assembly every morning before we proceed to business. And that's usually, you know, it's, it's a quote you've heard before. It's, it's one of my favorites. I go, I read it to you at least three times a year on this program. 
But a lot of people leave the story there. But Franklin believed that their prayers over the convention, from that point forward, they, they held prayer over the Constitutional Convention, and he believed that their prayers were answered. After five weeks of failure, following the time of recess and prayer that Franklin called for, they reconvened, and in ten weeks, just ten weeks, produced the document that became the longest ongoing constitution in the history of the world, our United States Constitution. And while Franklin never said that the finished constitution was inspired in the sense that the Bible was inspired, which it isn't, he still believed that it was a, prog uh, a product of God's direct intervention. And he said, I may not be understood to infer that our general convention was divinely inspired when it formed the new federal constitution, yet I can hardly conceive a transaction of such momentous importance to the welfare of millions now existing and to exist in the posterity of a great nation should be suffered to pass without being in some degree influenced, guided, and governed by that omnipotent, omnipresent, and beneficent ruler in whom all inferior spirits live and move and have their being. Alexander Hamilton said, For my own part, I sincerely esteem it a system with which without the finger of God could never have been suggested and agreed upon by such diversity of interests. James Madison said, It is impossible for the man of pious reflection not to perceive in it a finger of that almighty hand which has been so frequently and signally extended to our relief in the critical stages of the revolution. We could go on. But today, on this day of prayer, when we'll, we'll pray for the president, we'll pray for our nation, we'll remember moments like these, moments like Franklin's address in the Constitutional Convention. But is there more that we should be praying for today? Yes, pray for our leaders, pray for those in authority. We're commanded to do that in the Bible. But David Barton was asked a question several years ago in an interview that he was giving about our founders and what they felt about prayer. And he was asked what his prayer would be for our country. And he said that he would pray for our leaders, those in authority. And he said, but I would probably pray even more for America's Christians. Founding Father Samuel Adams remind us that while the people are virtuous, they cannot be subdued. But when once they lose their virtue, they will be ready to surrender their liberties to the first external or internal invader. Benjamin Franklin agreed, declaring only a virtuous people are capable of freedom. As nations become corrupt and vicious, they have need of more masters. So why does this apply to us as Christians? Because George Barna, an eminent national pollster who especially surveys issues related to biblical thinking and values, reports that of the thousands of surveys he has conducted over recent decades, of more than 70 more moral behaviors we study, when we compare Christians to non-Christians, we rarely find substantial differences. So, generally speaking, there is almost no difference in the way that Christians and non-Christians behave in most moral areas. Bern, Bern, uh, Barna farther investigated how many American Christians actually hold a biblical worldview. How many of them view the world around them through the filter of biblical truth? And Barna used a very simpler standard for a measure uh, to that question. For the purposes of the survey, a biblical wor worldview was defined as believing, one, that absolute moral truth exists, two, that the Bible is totally accurate in all of the principles it teaches, three, that Satan is a real being or force, not merely symbolic, four, that a person cannot earn their way to heaven by trying to be good or do good works, five, that Jesus Christ lived a sinless life on earth, and six, that God is the all-knowing, all-powerful creator of the world who still rules the universe today. In that research, in that survey, anyone who held all of those beliefs was said to have a biblical worldview. And what percentage of Christians agreed with these six fundamental timeless doctrines of Orthodox Biblical Christianity? Only 9%. Nine out of every ten Christians did not believe these most elemental doctrines of the Bible. And among born-again Christians, those who were considered most serious about their faith, only 19% held a biblical worldview on these six non-negotiables of Christianity.
And so, what Barton concluded is that most Christians today no longer know, recognize, or even agree with our political leaders, much less our ministers. And so while he would pray for our leaders and pray for our president and pray for our elected officials, he said, I would especially pray for Christian citizens that we would again begin to read, study, know, and understand the Bible. America can be no stronger than its citizens, and whether the citizens will be strong and virtuous depends on whether they know the Bible. And we're going to wrap up there for today, and that's my encouragement to you. This National Day of Prayer, as you're praying for our president and our elected officials locally and state level, don't forget to pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ here in America and around the world. Don't forget to pray for your fellow Christians. Because again, only a virtuous people are capable of freedom. When the people are virtuous, they cannot be subdued, but once we lose our virtue, as Samuel Adams said, they'll be ready to surrender their liberties to the first external or internal invader. As you pray for America on this National Day of Prayer, don't forget to pray for we, the people. And that's it. That's all the time I have left for today. The seconds are ticking by saying, stop talking, stop talking, stop talking. That's what it flashes on my screen. I'm just kidding. It doesn't actually say that. But it could. <laughs> Thank you for listening. Always a pleasure to have you here with us. You can find me on Facebook or Twitter at The Frittle if you have thoughts, comments, concerns, questions. Send them to me there. We can have a conversation and it will be amazing and fabulous. Or, you know, don't. You can just come visit me in person on Sunday morning. I'll be here at church. You should be here too. 9.30 or 11.15 or 6 p.m. Sunday evening. If you can't be here in person, stream us online by visiting our website at experienceliberty.com. Or you can go like us on Facebook at Liberty Baptist Church of Las Vegas. And you can watch a live stream of our service there as well. Don't forget... Come to church this Sunday. Free tacos for everyone after the service. 6501 West Lake Me Boulevard is our address. And we will see you back here tomorrow. Same time, same place on KVXL.